Have you ever noticed the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? That something is just a little off kilter, just a little out of focus. Some of you may know me from my career in the distilled spirits industry as the alchemist of the Black Forest of Indiana. An industry, as I see it, more than just a little influenced by the occult and the work of opening doors and capturing essences. Here, you'll see another side of what I do and how I'm influenced by such experiences. Here, myself and occasionally friends will share first-hand accounts, stories shared with us, for tea and news, interviews, and a healthy dose of history and speculation. Settle in for the ride and enjoy. Perhaps that movement you saw out of the corner of your eye was more than just a shadow. Perhaps that weight on your shoulder, a bit more than fatigue. I've lived my whole life like this. Perceptive of those things that might be viewed by the less aware amongst us as simple circumstances, magic thinking, or even make-believe. Anticipating with the many ups and downs of my own perception, I have anxiously awaited the more positive of those experiences, dreading those of a darker caliber. I believe from societal observation in recent years that others are becoming acutely aware of the currently scientifically unmeasurable world that surrounds us. I believe that spiritual warfare is real. Join us as we take a hard left into the heath and the heather. Join us as we call out into the void, as the veil frays at the edges, and recall, if you have ghosts, you have everything. My view of the world is likely a bit eccentric. As disparate as some of my passions may seem to others, in my mind's eye, they are all interconnected. The art of distillation, agriculture, music, and spirituality, they all inspire and influence one another in a strange state of consciousness, stream of thought. They form a conglomeration of ideas and ideals. While if you have ghosts, you have everything, is not primarily focused on the distilling arts. There can be no doubt that the two certainly intersect for me. The art of distillation was founded, after all, amongst the mystery schools, inherited by alchemists, and copied by the uninitiated of the heath and groves the world over. Its product, a tool, in fact, when used responsibly, it can open doors and alter states of consciousness. When abused, it leads to moral decay and spiritual death. The very word spirits relates to the philosophy of capturing the absolute pure essence of the Creator's various works. To purify and remove the gross, to intensify and preserve that which is fleeting. Through the application of fire, the purifying element, to a cucurbit or a boiler, the representation of the earth itself, driving the spirit as a vapor, through a hat or helmet, a representation of the heavens and the pneuma or the air, into a water-cooled condenser, where a phase change from vapor to liquid occurs, 
Of this is born the aqua vitae, the very water of life, the living water, the water that can miraculously burn, the transmutation complete, baptism by fire, rebirth. This quote from the 1903 book, The Still Room, sums it up best. There is no occupation that comes nearer to God's than this occupation of distilling. The distiller can but smile at the impotence of those who are unable to conceive the possibility of a post-physical human existence. For day by day, as he stands before his stills, he sees the miracle performed whereby the spiritual, the essential, is separated and continues to exist apart from the material body in which it previously dwelt. Is it any wonder then that true folk farmer distillers would be a superstitious lot, from naming stills based on female biblical characters or goddesses of antiquity, to Irish pochin distillers who developed a method for removing the poisonous first fraction of a distillate by throwing it with their right hand over their left shoulder as an offering to the fey folk to avoid the kidnapping and switching of their firstborn male child with a sickly changeling. That cultures and magical practices use spirits the world over as a spiritual lubricant and an offering to the gods and ancestors. Is it any wonder then that many distilleries are hotspots of paranormal activity. The very air itself is charged with heightened emotion, awareness, and purpose. This week on If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, we explore haunted distilleries. Bourbon. Scotch, cognac, gin, any type of spirit that you get a chance to taste transports you to a new and very interesting universe. Hi, I'm Jack Bigadu. On the street, I'm known as a hood sommelier. And what I do is I love to taste new spirit and educate people on how to appreciate each spirit that they put their nose or their taste bud into. Follow me on this journey and help me guide you on appreciating every spirit that you touch. Remember, the truth is bearer proof. See you next time. We start tonight's journey through haunted distilleries at the Goodrum and Warts Distillery in Toronto, Canada. James Warts and his brother-in-law, William Goodrum, came from Suffolk, England to Canada to start a milling business in Toronto. Unfortunately, the death of James's wife during childbirth left Warts a broken man, and he committed suicide soon thereafter by drowning in the well of the windmill. This mill was later repurposed into a distillery by Guterham and James' oldest son, James Jr., and was at one point in time producing 2.1 million gallons of alcohol a year, becoming for a time the largest distillery in the world. 
After the death of both Guterham and Warts in the 1880s, the distillery nearly followed them to the grave with the arrival of Prohibition. Harry C. Hatch purchased the affair in 1923, and it is after this date that workers began reporting strange occurrences, such as doors opening and closing, lights flickering, and reports of James Wart Sr. himself showing up for work. Better late than never. Bowmore Distillery in Isla, Scotland was founded in 1779. Many workers report that a ghost is associated with the distillery vaults, but seems to be the least concerning of the paranormal concerns associated with this distillery. Legends have claimed that Old Scratch himself was chased from the Killaroe Church, built in 1767, into the distillery where the doors were boarded up, but no sign of the devil was ever found. The church was built in the round to supposedly keep out the devil and give him no corner to hide. However, it is the tales of a headless horseman that are most famously associated with Bowmore. Legend said a local crozer returned home one night to see this apparition riding away from his home. The door of the home was left open, and an open bottle of Bowmore was found laying on the floor with a large dram missing. It's said that many to this day will not offer an open bottle of whiskey to guests for the fear of the horseman's return. At nearby Jura, it is witchcraft and revenge, and the 1700s which fuels the spirits. It is said that the local lords of the land, the Campbells, attempted to raise taxes, and when families were unable or refused to pay the landowners, they destroyed their homes. A local hedge witch was said to have stood up to the family and cursed them. The Campbells evicted her from the island, and as she left, she foretold that the last Campbell of the line would be forced to leave the island, and that when he did, he would do so with but one eye, and with all of his worldly possessions held in a single cart drawn by a solitary white horse. In 1938, her prediction proved true, as Charles Campbell, the last in his family line, left the island with but one eye as the other was shot out in the First World War. Fittingly, his possessions were packed into a single cart, pulled by a lone white horse. Another Jura legend involves the early banning of whiskey by one of the Campbell family on the island, which seemed to anger the spirit of the island itself. In 1781, Laird Archibald Campbell outlawed distilling on the Isle of Jura, Scotland. Thirty years later, he awoke in the dead of night to find a ghostly woman floating over him as he woke from a deep sleep. The spirit berated him for the lack of whiskey, and it scared him such that he not only reversed the ban, but he built a distillery to appease the ghosts. After the distillery eventually moved locations, Rumor has it, a bottle of whiskey was buried at the side of the original distillery to keep the woman's thirst at bay. At Kentucky's Buffalo Trace Distillery, its former president, Albert Blanton, who is said to wander the hollowed grounds of this two-century-old distilling complex. The spirit of Blanton has been seen in one of the warehouses by tourgoers and guides both, despite his earthly demise in 1959. Irish whiskey was first produced on the site at Kilbegan Distillery in 1757, 
Matthew McManus founded the operation and his family oversaw operations until the business was acquired by John Locke in 1843. Locke's distillery ran successfully for many years before global conditions including prohibition, trade wars, and competition coupled with an aging infrastructure eventually made operations unsustainable, forcing the distillery to close in 1958 after 201 years of trade. A mysterious figure in a black robe has been spotted in the courtyard. It's possible that this spirit may be related to a Cistercian Abbey that once stood nearby and which was dissolved in 1539. Loud noises and the sound of footsteps have been heard emanating from the empty lofts, and the sound of whispering is also common when the building is quiet. Matthew McManus is said to roam the buildings, obviously keeping an eye on things and making sure all is well. His son John has also been spotted at the site. A medium who visited the distillery claimed that John could not rest, having been executed as a traitor by the British in 1798. Another medium, the late Derek Akora, was said to have been engulfed by spirits during his visit, and he claimed to have connected with the spirit of Flo, Eklis. Her maiden name was Locke, the last in a 120-year line of Locke's to manage production at the site before its closure. A toast to the ghosts. At Glenros, the spirit of long-deceased, Byway, Macalaga, is still honored. Ironically, the distillery itself is located just across the road from the cemetery where his remains are interred. The stones therein are covered with the same black alcohol-consuming fungus that affects most distilleries. Rescued by Major James Grant, the proprietor of the Glen Grant Distillery in 1898 from Zimbabwe, Byway was suffering from the famine that was hitting the region. According to family lore, Grant took Byway in, as the boy's parents feared his chances of survival were slim if he remained with the elderly African couple. Little is known of Byway's childhood, although it's likely that the name Biawa is a corruption of the Shona word Biwa, which means stolen. It is a distinct possibility the child was in fact stolen from his parents. Biawa, Byway, worked as the major's page boy but was also sent to the local school and learned English with a local accent. In time, he became the Major's footman and servant until he was conscripted into the Army, where he served in the Middle East during World War I. He was awarded the British War Medal and the Victory Medal. When Major Grant died in 1931, he made provisions for his heirs to maintain Byway. Grant House was requisitioned during World War II and Byway was forced to take employment elsewhere as a servant. After the war, he returned to Rothy's, but the Glen Grant house was by then turned into apartments for rent to the still workers. Byway was to find himself living in one of these apartments, and a provision was made for him to get his meals daily. Byway died in 1972 at around 80 years old, and was laid to rest in a grave overlooking Glen Roth's. When a new still house was opened in 1980, the new number three still was not performing as anticipated, and around the same time, the ghostly byway started making himself known to workers. Why suddenly was the spirit so willing to show itself? 
Cedric Wilson Professor of Pharmacology at the University College of Dublin and an expert in paranormal phenomenon, including ley lines, heard the story of Byway and the malfunctioning still and reached out to the distillery during maintenance shutdown in August of 1981. According to the professor, the new building had damaged an important ley line which passed through Ross Castle, the distillery, and the cemetery, and had disturbed the spirit of Byway. Subsequently, iron rods were hammered into the damaged line to correct the energy flow, and Byway has reportedly been at rest since then. However, it is customary to toast the ghost of Byway with a dram prior to a tour. The Moss Beach Distillery on California's San Mateo coast was once known as Frank's Place. Built by Frank Torres in 1927, the establishment became a popular night spot for movie stars and politicians during Prohibition. Uniquely situated on a cliff above a secluded beach, Frank's was the perfect place to benefit from clandestine alcohol deliveries, primarily from Canadian rum runners, who moved under the cover of darkness and fog to deliver illegal whiskey that was landed on the beach dragged up a steep cliff, and loaded up for distribution and delivery into various vehicles, as well as the garage under Frank's place. Frank's political and social connections kept him from ever being raided. During the time of Frank's place, a beautiful young woman met a dangerous man and fell in love with him. Some say he was a piano player in the bar. The young woman, who always had a penchant for blue dresses, was already married to someone else. But her husband never knew of the illicit affair. She made many trips to Frank's to be with her lover. The beautiful lady in blue was reportedly killed while walking on the beach below with her lover. He was himself assaulted, but survived. She's forever doomed to search this world alone for her lover. To this day, phone calls come in from seemingly no one. Checkbooks levitate. Rooms lock from the inside without any means of entry. Women diners lose jewelry, which they are unable to find until several weeks later, when many are found all at once in one place. You may not know it, but there is in fact a whiskey prison located in Mount Pleasant, North Carolina. Southern Grace Distilleries is located in the old Cabarrus Correctional Facility. Here guests report shadows, footsteps, and physical interactions of all types amongst the modern distilling equipment and maturing barrels. Glen Spey Distillery in Speyside, Scotland was used to temporarily lodge soldiers during the Second World War, and it was during this time that one such soldier met a tragic end. While enjoying his surroundings, the unknown soldier was accidentally electrocuted and died. It is said that his spirit still roams the grounds of Glen Spey every night still wearing his uniform and carrying his rifle as if ready for battle. At Glendronic and Roths, it is said that one dark night, when the Spanish Oloroso casks had just been delivered, the figure of a dark-haired flamenco dancer escaped from one of the open barrels. In full flamenco regalia, complete with a black mantilla covering her face, she is said to rustle through the stillhouse and appear near the warehouse on pleasant evenings. Dallas Dew Distillery, the defunct distillery located in Forez, now a visitor attraction. Many visitors claim that they felt a strong and intelligent presence around them 
when touring the museum distillery. Those who mention this to the staff members are told the story of the distillery employee who drowned in one of the massive mash tons decades earlier. If their tales are to be believed, when the visitor center gets quieter, steps and unexplained noises are often heard. Where the malting floors once were, the old and stiff light switches appear to be turned at night, and very often, workers will go to the distillery in the morning and find the lights on. The Glenmorangie Distillery, the decommissioned floor maltings at this distillery, are said to be haunted by the ghost of the White Lady. This mysterious ghost is said to also have a skill for removing wallpaper from the walls without tearing it. A former distillery manager once said that the walls were bone dry and as such there was no explanation for the mysterious removal of wallpaper. The skeptics claimed that the White Lady was simply a tale devised to keep the maltsters productive during long night shifts. The Glen Scotia Distillery has the ghost of one of the directors, Duncan McCallum, as a permanent residence. This businessman drowned himself in the Campbelltown Lock, a lock used to supply the distillery with water after his newly acquired distillery went under. Employees of the distillery today will never venture into the darker areas of the distillery. This business ghost is said to keep a close eye on contractors. They often claim that they feel like they're being watched when carrying out work at the distillery's grounds. Could it be that the ghost wants to ensure that no more business deals turn sour for his beloved distillery? Hey Metalheads, I'm Mark and I host Metal Forge. Let me tell you about the show. The Metal Forge features the best underground metal from all over the world. We spend every week with a different artist with interviews, in-depth conversations, and most of all, the music. We also feature audience interactivity where you can submit your questions to the upcoming guests. New episodes are out every Friday at noon Eastern Time at MetalForgeRadio.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome back to If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. So, um, Kim is here with us again. Again, my my uh, my lovely wife who um, hasn't slit my throat with a piece of paper in my sleep yet, uh, despite wanting to do so several times. I have caught her sneaking yeah. around the bedroom a few times yeah. in the dark. But I hear you. Um, so, I hope you guys are enjoying the episode so far. We thought that the Haunted Distilleries episode would be a lot of fun, again, because there's crossover uh, between what I do for a living and also this podcast and the paranormal and, and that whole spiritual sort of theory that I have about distillation. Um, so we're going to get into a couple of experiences that we actually had at, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, both distilleries that I worked at in the past, um, Copper and Kings, as well as Spirits of French Lick, uh, where I currently work, um, and some things that happened at both those distilleries, some with Kim and some on my own. Uh, and I also want to add, at the very end of this episode, there will be a bonus piece of audio uh, a bonus segment that we recorded yesterday, the very first field recording that we've ever done, interviewing somebody live out in the field. And that was with Miss Judy Quinlan of um, Beck's Mill. We were out at Beck's Mill yesterday here in historic southern Indiana, an old historic mill. We'll give you the background of that in that segment. Um, we didn't know how that recording was going to turn out. We've I've played around with a little recorder that we used a few times. It makes pretty good audio recordings. 
course, this is live out in the field. Um, you're probably going to hear some cicadas. You're definitely going to hear some traffic go by. Uh, and you're going to hear some gunshots because welcome to Washington County. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, um, but there is something in there that I think we both kind of wanted to address before you guys do hear it and before we go into our experiences at the distillery. And something to be aware of is on the, the side of the mill that we're at, there is no, there's a road that runs between us. So like he said, you'll hear the traffic go by, but otherwise there is no mechanical anything other than vehicles in that vicinity and there is no electricity on that side other than street lights right you don't even get a good cell phone signal um you have to stand in very particular places on that hill and if you move more than six inches one direction you'll lose signal and your phone will drain within about three hours because it's searching for signal the whole time yes and and this this place as judy will talk about obviously has a history of paranormal activity and in the future we'll, we're going to interview other people from bex mill and get some of their um some of their paranormal experiences that they've had over the years. Uh, this place dates back to the very early 1800s, uh, one of the very first families in southern Indiana. Yesterday uh, was their 214th anniversary, so that gives you a, a time frame. Right. So we're going to get to all that, but what I wanted to preface that with is not only those notes about the field recording, but um, as we were recording the first time, I am, and at first I thought it was because Maybe I didn't press the record button on this recorder twice because you have to press twice to make it start. Uh, we did the whole segment, which was about 15 minutes, and then realized that it didn't record anything. Um, during that event, Kim was taking pictures. Yeah, I was taking pictures, and, uh, you know, the new phones, they have that facial recognition box that pops up. And at the time I was taking pictures, I noticed that it put a box around Judy's face, it put a box around Alan's face, and then it put a box in the frame just over Alan's shoulder as well. And there was no one there. There was, like, there's grass in that end of the frame. that You can't see the truck, you can't see anything else. It's just grass, the hillside. <laughs> Which is creepy enough, but then when we get done and realize it hasn't recorded, I then I have to ask Judy, you know, can we do this again? And, and Judy much like Kim and and to a lesser extent myself she knows when there are things that are happening and it kind of drains her as well um and she's she's been there all day and I've been there all day we've been out in the hot sun selling a, a dvd about the history of um distilling in Indiana's black forest and I've been doing some demonstrating and stuff like that with some moonshine techniques etc um so I could tell that she was she was a little tired but we get the second uh recording done and I see that the recorder has recorded it. I don't bother to listen to it because we're loading up. We're getting ready to come home. We go walk through the mill one time with our daughter, Penny Marie, and uh, come back. I get in the truck, come home. I don't mess with it last night because I'm too tired to mess with it. I wake up this morning, hook everything up to the soundboard, run everything through the soundboard into the, the uh, program we used to edit with. And as I'm listening back to the recording, all of a sudden you hear this strange distortion come in and you can see it on the screen. And I actually shared a video of it uh, via Instagram Reels if you guys want to see it. But it goes from a steady uh, vocal recording to what literally looks like the sound waves just look like somebody yelling, uh, as well as some um, some strange uh, Hertz interference uh, that was cyclical, right? Um, but it didn't, when you listen to it, it almost comes off as static. But if you look at it on the actual editing program, it looks like vocal waves. Um, and this didn't happen one time. It happened three different times during the recording. Now, what you're going to hear at the very end of this, I'm not putting any music over top of it or anything. 
The only editing I did to it was take out a spot where we had some people walk up uh, during the recording and I had to send Kim over to talk to him and let him know that we we're recording a podcast uh, because it kind of threw me and Judy off. But when we get to the part in the recording, uh, when you hear the part in the recording where all this noise happens at, whatever this was, and let me be very clear, I'm not saying that it was a voice or it was paranormal or anything of that nature. I just find it very interesting that it happened when it did, where it did, and how it did. Um, in accordance with other things that had already happened. Yes, and and especially the topics that we were talking about during these three uh, pieces of interference, which you'll hear in the recording. So the only thing I did there was it literally maxed out the recorder, it maxed out the board, it maxed out the audio editing software. So I had to go in and put just a low clip or a high clip filter on it to bring the highs down. And then I put a, a, a click remover on it. Um, basically to keep the popping from being so loud because otherwise if you guys are listening to this on headphones or on a stereo it's going to blow your eardrums out or possibly bust the uh, bust the speakers in your car so you will notice that when it gets to those part in that recording uh, the audio will drop off just a little bit but everything else is unprocessed it's there as it was when we were in the field um, and you guys make up your own mind but I will tell you that I think when you hear hear the recording particularly the very first one the first one was the loudest one it's when we were talking about um, a place called Donovan's or Donovan's. Yeah, Donovan's. Don I always get confused. It's in the recording. It doesn't it's, matter. It's like Jonathan, but with a D. Yes. Um, <laughs> so we we're talking about uh, one of the legends about them having a black bear tied up at this tavern uh, back in the day um, and them getting rid of problem people via the black bear. And that's when it first starts. And that one is, uh, to me, that one came off almost angry. Right. And so. it also needs to be notated that the, this uh, recorder, it's like kind of like the one that you see on the paranormal shows that has the two microphones the left and the right on the very top of it. Um, it's digital. Um, and at that moment in time, there was nothing else on the table that could have created the kind of interference that we were having. Right. Well, we'll let, we'll let them decide. So with that being said, uh, you ready to jump into the... Uh, I'm absolutely ready. You didn't even let me finish my sentence. You're really getting tired of me. <laughs> All right, we're going to get to it. This is Alan Bishop of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Are you interested in distilled spirits, the production thereof, tastings? Well, let me tell you about a cooperative group of some of my best friends and favorite podcasters in the industry, the Bar Cart Co-op. The Bar Cart Co-op is made up of several unique spirits-based content creators. Do you love music? The stories behind the music? How about the way that music influences the people who craft your favorite independent spirits? Be sure to check out Kevin Rose and Drew Crawley with special guests on the Bourbon Turntable. Are craft spirits reviews, good laughs, and big personalities your thing? Check out my brothers Patrick and Mike on My Whiskey Den every Monday at 9 o'clock Eastern. Patrick and Mike bring in the best of craft spirits, review them, and have a great time on their show. What a better way to follow up the shittiest first day of the week anyways. Do deep dives into distilling methodology with a diverse group of distillers the world over aimed at both home and legal distillers interest you? Then check out my other show with my co-host Christy Atkinson, Distillers Talk. Available wherever you get your podcasts. How about Victorian era cocktails? My brother Brian Cushing, Victorian man, has you covered over on YouTube via the Victorian Barroom. For more information, check out barcartcoop.com. 
Okay, guys, welcome back to If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. This is Kim and Alan, and we're going into the actual distilleries that Alan's worked in that were haunted now. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I'm catching my breath. I had to put the dog back out. <laughs> so, um, probably his first experience with distillery ghosts began at Copper and Kings, and I'm not really sure what led up to the event that I know of and was there for. Um, so, I I mean I never really had anything weird happen at Copper and Kings. It's uh, Copper and Kings is located in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, in uh, what's called Butchertown, which was um, kind of an area where they where a lot of uh, livestock was brought to be butchered and things of that nature. And it, it's kind of right on the edge of Butchertown, where you're going into what was called the Old Point neighborhood. And the point no longer exists. The um, the only real parts of it that exist is there's a um, a house facade uh, called the High Gold House. Uh, which is pretty interesting on Frankfurt Avenue that dates back to the uh, the 1850s um, with sort of this rise of anti-German, anti-Irish immigrant um, hatred, for lack of any better word. Uh, but the Point neighborhood was originally real low down next to the river. Uh, it flooded very easily. Uh, the Louisville Botanical Gardens, I believe that's what it's called. I'm probably wrong, but that is actually, at one point in time, that was a dump. Uh, but prior to that, it became a dump because they literally, when they tore the Point neighborhood down, they pushed everything into this area and started covering it up. Um, and the reason they tore everything down is that neighborhood was primarily made up of basically people who would come up here in the summertime from New Orleans to basically try to escape the heat in the summertime by coming to Louisville. The problem was it was really, really prone to flooding. And also there were a lot of uh, pest issues being so close to the river with mosquitoes and, and potentially rats and things of that nature. Um, I know on the side of Copper and Kings, there was uh, there were had been a number of businesses over the years. Prior to it becoming a distillery, I think it, they were making uh, animal feed there. And there was an old building out front that they'd torn down, and while they were putting in the uh, the Monarch Way station, the, uh, the butterfly garden out front, as they were excavating that, I did find a number of old horseshoes and stuff like that out there. Uh, so showing that that little piece of land had been used for a very long time. I don't know any any history of, you know, anything in specific that would have happened on the site where anybody got killed or anything of that nature, uh, etc. And I never had anything happen while I was actually working. Um, as I recall this particular story, we were at an event for Halloween. Yeah, there, it, was a, it was a party for Halloween. So the way that the building is set up, <clears throat> excuse me. So you had the, the basement, which was the barrel chai, and that's where they sound aged all of the brandy. So there were speakers down there that played music to the barrels and caused them to vibrate. All of that generates energy, but we'll get back to that in a minute. The next floor is where the sills were. Um, and then the floor after that was um, the like an event space that you could you had access you had access to some of the tanks uh, the dump tanks where they would proof and age or proof the the product before it goes into barrels yeah the actual second floor yeah that was that was partially production and partially event hall and also offices right and um the you had access to the gym basket up there as well Mm -hmm. and then you go on up to the third floor and that was like a full-scale commercial kitchen tasting room um and then you had access to the roof for additional event space so we had been he had been doing um tours all night and i kind of hung out in the office and whatnot um 
because I, I don't like to drink alone. I don't know too many people that do. So I just kind of hung out in the office while he did tours. And after that, um, we were just, all kind of... Just interrupt here to say that if you have ghosts, you don't have to drink alone. Uh, yes, that's true. That is absolutely true. Um, but w- after they got done doing tours, you know, Alan and the other distiller that was there that night came in and we were kind of chit-chatting and talking brandy and whatnot. And um, we just kind of on a whim decided, you know, it's Halloween. Let's go to the basement and see if we can rustle up some spirits. And I, yeah, I think, I, I think it started because we had dowsing rods in the car, right? We had dowsing rods in the car. And he was doing the last tour and somewhere in there, the conversation came up like, Hey, they'll be out of the basement in a little bit. Let's yeah. go get the dowsing rods and just see what happens. And this was right when, um, Kim first started getting into dowsing rods and we found out that it was actually, actually the it. very, very first time I picked up a pair of dowsing rods at all. And it was a pair that Alan made out of like a, one of those like yard sale sign stake things or whatever, just, you know, junk metal laying around dowsing rods. that didn't have, uh, the, the little spool things on the end of them that allow them to turn freely. So you have to hold them like in your hand with your hand kind of open with just like two fingers so that it can rotate. Um, for, for anybody who doesn't know what dowsing rods are, uh, if you've ever seen anybody or heard anybody talk about water witching to find wells or springs or um, sometimes even um, people who work for electric companies or, or water companies, etc. I've literally seen contractors use dowsing rods instead of using uh, a grid or anything like that right. to find uh, those sources of energy. And, um, and sometimes... Uh, people on cemetery commissions yeah. use them to find we, graves as well and i talked about that on on episode one with the john bowman episode that you know using dowsing rods to find his wife's grave and all of that sort of stuff so um you can use them as a sort of medium i guess you would say um to ask right. questions right and so the way i use them because i mean i use i use them as a um tool to confirm what i'm reading when i'm doing tarot and things like that now this particular night again this was the first time i ever picked up a pair ever okay and you can ask yes no questions you can use them to follow spiritual energy throughout a place etc um on this instance we were just like well let's go down there and see what we can come up with and um started asking yes no questions we were like little giddy kids if i remember right like we were a little bit intoxicated okay, like can't wait for <laughs> this them. was well before penny was a glimmer in our eye <laughs> you're you're fine um basically couldn't wait to uh to get to the basement but we had to wait for the tour to get out of there right so. we had to wait for the tour to get out of there and we went down with our dowsing rods and we just started asking questions yes no questions to see what we could get you know yes cross the wands no open them um and we started just to see if there was anything down there and we were getting responses we were getting responses to questions like we would ask where is in the building is this person and like we would say did where's the tour and it would turn and point towards the door and things like that as confirmation for what we were doing now as i've gotten further along in my pro- practice like i said i use dowsing rods to confirm what I'm getting from the cards. So, yeah. Um, and so I don't, I don't remember exactly what all we asked, but, um, do you, do you remember anything in particular that we um, asked? But... Just if there was any energy down there, any spiritual energy down there, um, 
and you know not knowing the history of the place you couldn't really get into a whole lot of detail we did ask if somebody was there and and the once we started asking those personalized questions the responses were pretty quick and the thing yep. with dowsing rods is you're holding them in your hands um, and you're holding them loosely and the idea is that maybe somehow these work off of some energy that we don't know about we don't quite understand uh, there's some controversy out there about dowsing rods and i'm not going to get into all that because all i can talk about is what i've experienced but if you're holding them loosely in your hands and you ask a question and the two rods come together very hard um that's that's an affirmation that's a positive right and so the questions that we asked that were personal like that like is there somebody here i remember that question that was it a hard was guess. actually it was more specific because you know there was obviously people in the building so well, we said yeah. is there spiritual energy here or is there a spirit here right and you know. if it was connected to the place, which was a hard yes as well as I remember. Mm -hmm. um, and we did this for probably 30 minutes. And again, nothing weird happened. I don't remember. Right. And it wasn't like that building didn't give you the creeps. You didn't feel weird. Things didn't just overtly happen there. It was just on a whim. It was an old part of Louisville that we didn't know whether anybody had done that. And we, we decided to check it out. And, I, and now that I'm remembering things about the area... The building behind the building was the flood wall, flood wall, but yep. in front of the, or not in front of the building, but to the side of the building where we go in and out by the docks, the train tracks ran through there. Yes. Absolutely. So yeah, there and was it, a conduit there. It is, uh, it was cat corner, uh, off to the, uh, if you were facing South off to the South West corner, the building was an empty lot, which used to be the old APH Stitzel distillery. If anybody listening is familiar with, um, Stitzel Weller. Uh, which was the second distillery they built on the far further on down uh, on the west side of Louisville. Um, or if you're familiar with, for example, Pappy Van Winkle, this is sort of the, the same three guys were involved in both companies. And uh, so I'm sure there's some energy there from that old distillery as well. But we brought this story into this conversation, uh, mostly just as really that was kind of one of the first real things that we after what we experienced on the farm, that was the first time that we really, like, you really delved and, into dowsing. Right, right. That was, like, that was the first steps into what I'm calling now my practice. That was also the first, like, outside of the John Bowman situation and um, connecting that to distilling and, and bringing the spirits and the spiritual together for Alan. That was his first step into that realm since the John Bowman house. Right, exactly. And we, we also kind of charged the atmosphere with that distillery in general, too, because it was always a little chaotic. And the stills were it also was extremely chaotic. <laughs> the stills were also named after. Uh, so one of them was named Inanna um, after a Babylonian goddess. And uh, the other one was Magdalena. Um, so, you know, we started off with some occult energy. and, and Well, and Inanna, not just a Sumerian goddess, goddess of grain and wisdom, but also something of a trickster. Yes, exactly. So... Alright, so moving on to uh, Spirits of French Lick, and these are just my experiences and the experiences that um, other people who I've worked with over the years there, I've been there now, uh, coming up on seven years in November, have had. So, And I'll preface this with a, a little history. So uh, the valley, which uh, French Lick and West Baden, which are kind of two towns literally right next to each other, you really can't tell where one ends and the other begins. Um, it's been a resort town since the 1850s. It was originally a uh, French fur trapper uh, sort of fort or settlement uh, very early on in the 1600s. Um, so it has a lot of history. So the resort, for example, um, really, 
has drawn a lot of business over the years. Uh, people coming in and putting in uh, high-end hotels uh, and health spas. The groundwater there is very particular. It's a, a type of sulfur water that's supposed to be good for your health, type of mineral water that's good for your health. Uh, and that resort sort of uh, mentality goes back to the 1850s. Um, by the late 1800s, uh, there was a gentleman who came into town uh, who we named our first uh, bourbon after, Lee W. Sinclair, and we'll talk about him momentarily as well. And he bought the old, what was called Baden Lick Hotel and ran it for a little while before it burned down. Uh, the one thing that Sinclair loved more than uh, the hotel business and business in general, a little background on him, his father was from Chicago and owned several uh, mills in Chicago. Um, he had actually been born in, I believe, Greene County, Indiana, and moved to Washington County uh, with his wife early on. Washington County is where we live at, where Pekin is, and uh, French Lick is next door in Orange County, Indiana. Um, Sinclair became the owner of both the New Albany and Salem State Bank through John Bowman, which we talked about in episode one of this show, uh, and then was also an investor in the railroad and ended up using that railroad to expand his empire, buying the Baden Lick Hotel before it burned down. When it burned down, he was going to get out of the business uh, completely, but his daughter absolutely loved the idea of this resort, so she talked him into building a new one. And Sinclair was actually a descendant of the Scottish Sinclairs and had spent a lot of time in Europe. He was involved in Freemasonry, the Knights of Pythias, etc. He had uh, quite um, some very heavy sort of occult leanings to some degree, right? He'd seen a lot of these interesting things over the years uh, as he traveled Europe and brought them back to the United States. So he decided that if he was going to rebuild the hotel, he was going to build it back as what he called the Carlsbad of America with a gaming room and all of these sorts of implements, a gaming room being basically a modern casino. And bearing in mind at that time, those were not legal and they weren't licensed. Um, this ended up leading to French Lick and West Baden having nine different hotels and casinos. Um, at one point in time, none of those casinos ever legal to the one that exists now there in French Lick. Um, and in fact, part of the reason that the Indiana State Police were put together was kind of bring these casinos to Hill. Um, and this was after Mr. Sinclair died. That being said, you can imagine there were brothels in town. As a matter of fact, the current visitor center used to be a brothel and was apparently, uh, the visitor center in West Baden was apparently still in operation up into the 1970s. I don't know if I ever told you that or yeah, not. Yeah, you did tell me that. And it, it drew in all sorts of nefarious individuals, including, you know, the mobsters and such. And the Chicago outfit, Diamond Jim in particular, was very good friends with the later owner, um, uh, Charles Edward Ballard, who owned uh, West Baden and uh, uh, several other establishments there in the it valley. Wasn't there at one time a, uh, and I don't know if this is rumor, but I vaguely remember someone saying they found a uh, still site that was linked back to um, Al Capone. So Ballard did have a still site, and the still does still exist. It's it's I won't say what location it's on, but it's it's close to the railroad track, and it's within right. twenty or thirty feet of the railroad track. Yes, and it's a four hundred gallon pot still. Right. Um, it doesn't have a head on it now, but it does exist. And yes, they were loading the trains with moonshine, because Ballard owned clubs all over the United States, including up in Michigan, um, Chicago, out on the East Coast, down in Florida. He actually had one in um, Havana, Cuba, of all places. Uh, the town also hosted, um, Ballard became a, a co-owner of pretty much every circus in the United States short of Barnum and Bailey, so they actually used French Lick as wintering quarters for the animals and the circus performers, uh, the same circus performers and animals, uh, many of which died in a, a tragic train wreck um, near Chicago uh, back in, I can't remember the year, we'd have to look, yeah, and we I may we remember. may do some, there's some, there's some stories about those hauntings up in that area too. 
Right. And we may do a, a story on that. Uh, but all that preface to tell you that there is some background in French Lick that, and even the feeling of French Lick and West Baden when you drive into them, uh, they initially, there are big gates that you you go through uh, on the main road going into West Baden. It doesn't feel like a place that should exist in southern Indiana. It feels right. like a, a very like southern Georgia kind of atmosphere. Right. And the building that the distillery is located in is also an old factory. Mm-hmm. And accidents happen in factories. And I'm not saying that any did, but accidents happen in factories and that can lead to things as well. Right. Right. That's, that's not something that we have proven through history, but mm-hmm. rumors. So, and we, and we play heavily into this. So, Spirits of French Lake is not just the spirits in the bottle. It's the spirits of the local place. That's why we name uh, the different products after different historical characters that maybe didn't get their due in time uh, way back when. So, that we, it, I joke that it's kind of a form of necromancy. Nobody knew who Lee Sinclair and Maddie Gladden were in New Orleans until we, re- we reintroduced right. the names. Right. It's... Um... It, it, again, lends back to we're putting energy into it, and those spirits are, they hear their name called into the ether, and they come back. Right. So, we've had a, a number of experiences at uh, the distillery. Myself, uh, my still hand, my father, um, even some of the, the other employees who've worked there in the past, uh, who, I don't, I think the majority of them are no longer there now, um, but when in the distillery, and I can only speak to the experiences that I've heard or had. Uh, so, one experience I had is early on, you know, when we're when you're first firing up a new distillery, there's a lot of problems, and you end up spending a lot of time there. As a matter of fact, I spent several nights in the boiler room in the wintertime by myself. And at one point, one cold night in the wintertime, I don't remember exactly what month it was or anything like that, but we had already heard... Um, there's some floor grading for some box drains outside my office door. And many times I had heard footsteps on those, those foot grates. If somebody walks across them, you can hear it. And you'd go and you'd look and there'd be nobody out there. You go check the parking lot. Nobody's in the parking lot. You go out front where the tasting room is and the winery is. Nobody's out there whatsoever. Uh, you'd go back into the office and the footsteps would start again. And then it became, we have a mezzanine for tours over top of my office. You start hearing footsteps going up the steps and walking across the mezzanine. Again, you go check and nobody is there. Um, some of the girls out front, some of the servers for the restaurant at the time, uh, I don't know that any of them ever told me that they saw anything, but they always had a, a sort of negative feeling about this hallway that runs between the winery production area um, and the front of house. Uh, and I, I think I vaguely remember one of them told me they saw something out of the corner of their eye, but I don't remember anything terribly vivid. Uh, my dad several times has heard people talking when no one is there. Um, we have a screen, a computer screen that turns the stills on and off, controls the steam and all that sort of stuff. And he swore up and down that, you know, many times while he's standing at that computer screen, he's felt somebody standing over his shoulder. And one time he saw what appeared to him to be a shadow in the reflection of that computer screen, which I think fairly well scared the shit out yeah, of my dad. Yeah, I would guess that. <laughs> um, so the, the main one that I've had happen... Uh, the, the main thing that has happened to me, the one that, that the only one that slightly scared me, really. I mean, they're all kind of creepy, but you know, there's a difference between being a little creeped out and being legitimately scared. Is one night staying at the distillery, like I said, in the wintertime, I was in my office, no one was there. Um, I don't believe I'd heard anything up to this point in time, but somebody flat knocked on the door and it sounded like they were knocking on the door like they were like mad a fist. like a fist like hitting the door like three knocks and the next thing I heard was the voice of my my current boss uh saying in an angry tone what are you doing in there right and I about jumped out of my damn chair like what what you know what's going on here 
and so I walk out and I look and he's nowhere to be seen. And I walk out front, nobody out there, all the lights are off, nobody's parked in the parking lot whatsoever. Um, went back to the office, closed the door, and it happened two or three other times. Now, one time it wasn't accompanied by any voice, but the other time, and I can't even remember what was said, but again, it came through in an angry voice, and it was very much so the voice of my employer there at the distillery, uh, clear as day, uh, as bright as it could possibly be, no mistaking who the voice was. So whatever this spirit is, it's, it's kind of hanging there around Spirits of French Lake. I've, I've never felt anything like real negative out of it, but it's clearly... It, li- it has a sense of humor, right? Right. It likes to mess with you a little bit. So um, I've not had any of that stuff happen for a little while, but I've also not been staying there as late because now we have plenty of help. We've kind of worked out the kinks and the equipment, etc. But I have no doubt that there is something there. Uh, as, as Kim said, it is an old um, factory. It's an old Kimball's piano plant. You know, people have accidents in, in factories all the time, as she said. People have heart attacks in factories. It could be just about anything. Um, It could go back in history way beyond that as well. I don't know. I have no way to prove one way or the other. But the last one I kind of wanted to end with, with the Haunted Distilleries episode, was the Lee Sinclair thing. So one thing that I've always done is if I'm going to name a bottle after somebody um, and pay tribute to them, I'm going to make sure that the first three bottles nobody gets. So those first three bottles are going to go to either the person's grave site or they're going to go to maybe the house of that person, the home of that person, if it still exists, or they're going to go uh, potentially to um, someone who played that character. Right. And the reason for that is it's respect. I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night with Lee Sinclair standing at the end of my bed going, well, you named a whiskey after me, but I didn't get a bottle. And so Mr. Sinclair is uh, buried in a mausoleum, the only real mausoleum at Crown Hill Cemetery in Salem, Indiana. Um, and I have gone out of my way to make sure that bottles of our two-year-old Lee Sinclair bourbon and our four-year-old bottled and bond bourbon, the first bottle of both of those, have ended up in that mausoleum for Lee Sinclair. And part of the rationale behind that is because there are several ghost stories about Mr. Sinclair, uh, including one where many employees who have worked at the uh, West Baden Dome and Hotel uh, particularly servers, etc., have mentioned seeing, you know, they're they're in a hurry, they're trying to get their work done, they're going through a door, somebody opens the door, holds the door, and they don't think about it until later, but it's an, an older gentleman uh, wearing a nice black business suit with right, sort of a string Right, he always did, yeah, as all of tie. his pictures, you Yeah, know. Um, and they don't realize until later. Right. That was probably Lee Sinclair standing there when I walked through that door. Right. So... Um, the other thing is that Lee was married twice, and his first wife, unfortunately, died during uh, one of the cholera outbreaks. Cholera was a big thing in the 1800s all across the Midwest because of old mill dams. They'd get backed up, and people didn't realize that cholera was being spread by mosquitoes. And so you'd go through years where you'd have these major outbreaks of cholera, and Salem was one of those towns that went through it multiple times. And I think we're going to talk about that in a future episode because there are a lot of mass graves in Washington County, Indiana. Yes, and and they're the ones they're they're actually labeled "Do not dig here" because well, they're not they're they're not labeled. Not lab- no, they they, not labeled they don't anymore? not like that. They're labeled "Area of Unknown Dead." Right is what they have on the on the stone when they're marked, and a lot of right. them are not marked like and, that. And you don't dig in those places because cholera will like kind of like parvo will live on in the soil indefinitely. Right. It's not something that can be killed off. But when she passed away from cholera, of course, Lee was pretty, you know, tore up over it, pretty heartbroken. And um, I still am not clear. I've not been able to find out for sure if she has her own grave or if she's in one of the mass graves. What I know is she is in the cholera area 
at Crown Hill Cemetery in the old part of the cemetery. And I've heard from two previous um, employees of the city that have worked at that cemetery. And I have heard this passed down from other people in the past as well, that on certain nights, people have seen a gentleman dressed like Lee Sinclair with the black business suit on, with the bow tie, or with the string tie on. I don't know what you call that, Tennessee necktie or something right. like that. Looking, walking around like he's looking for something in the old part of that cemetery. Now, the sad part of this is whether she's buried in her own grave or in a mass grave, in the mausoleum, there are four places. There's a place for Lee, there's a place for the second wife, and there's a place for their daughter, Lillian. Um, there's also a fourth place that remains empty, and that fourth place was supposed to be filled with the remains of Lee's first wife. Now, some people say she was never moved there because the second wife wouldn't have it, but if she had cholera and right, she's in one of those mass graves, yeah, they, they number one, number one at that time they would have had no way of identifying her in a mass grave. But number two, you don't disturb cholera graves because of the possibility of releasing, opening Pandora's box, as it were. Right. And so. and the other thing about Crown Hill Cemetery is that our local theater department, the Children's Theater, um, puts on a cemetery walk every like a couple of weeks before Halloween or something like that, a, a walk where they actually portray some of the prominent historical figures in the area that are buried there. So that lends energy to those spirits as well. Yeah, they're, they're definitely very, very well fed in Washington County for sure, I think, because there's still a lot of people who obviously, you know, we lean into a lot of the old Appalachian superstitious sort of ways. Right. A lot of the Scots, Irish, and German sort of ways, for sure. So, um, I think that kind of sums it up. I mean, right? Um, again, I mean, I just this, don't is, want... this is only this is only distillery number two for you, so it's not like we have, yeah, you know. But that's not to say that you know, as we're touring other facilities and things, because we do have a lot of distiller friends, and we have a lot of open invitations to go places and to tour places that are older that are. You know, other people don't have the luxury of touring in that way. Mm -hmm. Oh, there will definitely be a part two to this. And I, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And thank you very much. And uh, reach out to us at, uh, you know, the email because I don't. Okay. You can find us at our email. If you have ghosts underscore podcast at proton.me. Um, that that's is the our worst email. email address in the history of the world. Uh, well, <laughs> we, we went with Proton because it's not one that's easily accessible through yeah. and if they, normal if, means. If they can't remember that, we have a website as well. Well, we I we have a website for all of our projects. Right. Overall. We have the, the alchemistcabinet.com. It's exactly what it is. Um, soon forthcoming on there will be um, a shop where you can find all sorts of cool stuff. Um, and then we also have link trees in our bios on all of our social media platforms. I'd ask you to say what the social media stuff is, but I bet. Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. My tongue will get wrapped around my eye teeth because I won't be able to see what I'm saying. Wow. <laughs> All right. Are you, you ready to close this out? You go for it. All right. I'm closing it out. I don't have anything fancy to say. I hope you guys enjoyed. We love you. We'll catch you later. <laughs> I know what I did. I didn't press record twice. Now we've got it figured out. It's actually working. All right. Hey, guys. Bonus episode of uh, our bonus segment of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Uh, we're here live at uh, Bex Mill, Indiana um, in Washington County with uh, Judy Quinlan. Um, and Judy's here to tell us a little bit about the history of uh, Bex Mill 
and the uh, the Becks who started this mill, and then tell us about some paranormal things that may have happened here around the mill, uh, as well as stories that she's heard. And we'll preface this by saying that it's right on the Vincennes Trail, right off the Vincennes Trail. Uh, and so early on, it would have been a very dangerous place. Uh, there would have been a lot of vice in this area, a lot of um, uh, taverns and inns and things of that nature, and uh, a lot of places to really find yourself in a bad situation if you didn't watch what you're doing. And to be fair, uh, Judy's probably tired of dealing with me because we went to record this while ago and I didn't press the record button the right way, apparently. So um, she may punch me before this is over with. I wouldn't do that. Uh, hi, I, like, Mar like Alan said, I'm Judy. I have actually volunteered at the Beck's Mill for um, quite a few years, since 2007. Um, I really love Beck's Mill and its history. Um, it does have some stories to tell. Um, the Becks actually done their first corn grinding here in August of 1808, many years ago. It's went through several mills. It's went through several families. And um, I don't know, it just uh, just a pretty cool place to come and visit. Um, so who, who, who were the Becks, Judy? Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, the Becks, they came from Germany. Um, so that's beer drinking country for me is what I think. Um, I like German beer. But they did settle in uh, Berks County, Pennsylvania. And then they re relocated to North Carolina. They were Revolutionary War um, veterans. So uh, veterans of that war, we, we believe, um, they got um, land bounty. So um, George Beck came here looking for his land bounty. Um, and basically he was a miller and he was wanting to find a great place to put a mill. And so they, they basically found this place and it has a, a, a pretty large cave system, pretty large cave spring on it. And when they, when they came here, there were already some Native Americans here in the area, I believe some Delaware across the creek that had some corn that first year, if I remember right. Absolutely. Um, the Delaware was uh, camped next to the mill, we uh, believe. Um, they uh, became really good friends and everything. Uh, that being said, the Delaware were already here. Uh, and I, I think the, the Becks got to be um, pretty good friends with, with, the, with uh, some of the Delaware. Uh, so we know that there's a, a couple of Indian mounds um, around this area um, within, within close bounds to the mill, but there's supposedly a story about there being a Native American chief buried Absolutely. around here somewhere as well. There is. Um, whenever the Becks came here, they um, they actually discovered a really ornate grave up in the hills, and they asked them what it was about. They It was decorated with um, blackberries and uh, different fruits and everything, and they said that was when where one of their uh, chiefs was buried and for them to please respect it and not tell anybody where their chief was buried. And the Becks were such good friends with the Delawares that they absolutely carried that secret all the way down through their family line and has never told anybody where the chief was buried and everything. So, um, yeah, there's some, he's somewhere up there. We don't know what his name is, but we know he was seven foot tall <laughs> and everything. I just think that's funny that we know how tall he was and don't know right. his name. Probably some relation to, to Chief Highlands or Chief Ox here in the local area as well. Um, but I, I bring that up uh, as an interesting side. So obviously you have the Delaware here. They already have corn. You have the mill here. Um, they're milling. Every mill in southern Indiana basically had a distillery associated with it because the main product of the mills early on was whiskey, which made this area kind of a rough area. Um, led to a lot of taverns and those sort of things, which Judy can tell us about momentarily, too. Um, but the other thing with the Native Americans is they tended to bury their, their chieftains, at least here in southern Indiana, around water sources because they considered them sources of power and 
water and caves being um, a representation of the underworld. Uh, they used to call uh, sort of this Mesoamerican influence um, at one point in time was called kind of the Southern Death Cult, and that's fallen out of favor now. But it was a, a belief in uh, a boy turning into a man by basically taking hallucinogens and going into a cave and emerging out the other side, and he's gone through the transformation and became, become a man. And that ties into the sort of paranormal aspect of the show here. Um, so that being said, Judy, tell us a little bit about the uh, the tavern that's on top of the hill and some of the rumors about that. I've heard something about the bear chained up. Absolutely. Well, the Beck's uh, son-in-law, Donathan, actually was running a saloon just right up from the the mill on the Vincent's Trail. And um, if he uh, got into some kind of trouble and had taken somebody's money and thought he was going to get in trouble about it, um, he usually fed him to the bear. There was a bear <laughs> chained up there. That's what I heard anyhow. But there was a lot of craziness up there. They had a lot of different gunslingers and, and stuff like that. Whenever I uh, actually had went over to the Vincent's Library and was uh, studying for information about Beck's Mill, I ran across where the Pinkertons had actually investigated the Becks because so many people had came on the stagecoach and never got to their destination. And the last place they had stopped was the um, Beck Tavern or Saloon on the hill. So um, that leads to me to think that probably the bear ate them <laughs> and everything. <laughs> Right. You, you'd said something uh, earlier when I forgot to press record about um, one of the Becks had found a, a fishing hole uh, back here in the woods as well. Absolutely. Um, and there was an interesting story story there. Yeah. One of the Beck ladies, uh, she uh, um, happened to hear some water rushing up in the hill where she was walking. And she thought, hmm, I have a, my in my apron, I have a, a fish hook and a, a string. And she dropped that down and she caught all kinds of fish well everybody in the area wanted to know where her secret fishing hole was and she wouldn't tell and she went almost every day and got her a mess of fish to eat um, but she went one day and there was a boulder um, over her hole that she'd been fishing out of and she thought oh gosh how in the world so anyhow she got some of the back boys and they pushed that boulder off of that um, little hole that she was fishing out of and discovered a body or two well, the the people up at the saloon tried to blame it on the Native Americans, but everybody knew that was some of Donathan's uh, misdeeds and yes. everything. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly enough, it's, a, it's sort of a dichotomy, you know, between darkness and light here at Bex Mill, which is obviously, you know, there, there's a lot of family influence here. There's a lot of that that again Native American uh, tribal influence in the background. Um, and then, then you have these stories about all this craziness that happens because this is sort of an industrial complex for its time and a lot of, uh, a lot of questionable people end up here. The other side of that is that there were several distilleries around this area. The main two were ran by a man named Thomas Green who came here early on uh, and worked for George Beck. And he was, uh, he was actually a preacher distiller. And on this show that we've been doing about um, haunted distilleries, we've touched on the idea of spirits and the spiritual. And even though that preacher distiller thing sounds odd, it was, it was pretty common early on, and it makes a lot of sense. So um, if you need money to build your churches and what you can sell is alcohol, you start making alcohol in order to build your church buildings. And now you have control of both the flow of alcohol as well as your flock. You know who you need to cut off or who needs to be talked to, <laughs> and you can kind of keep them under control. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of that kind of feeds into the energy here around Bexmill too. So um, if you would, Judy, tell us about uh, are there any um, experiences that you've had, any kind of paranormal potential experiences that you've had here uh, around the mill yeah there there has been some experiences for sure but one of them um 
came about a, a hot day in July. They wanted to close the mill down because it was too hot. And um, we had just recently built our cabin, our restored our Obeck cabin on the hill. Um, the foundation was there in the fireplace, and we pretty well just added the logs back on it. But the doors and the windowsills needed to be painted, and I decided I wanted to go ahead and get those done. And I let everybody know that I was going to be up there by myself because I, you know, was uh, concerned, you know, that something might happen to me. And um, so I was up there painting away, and I kept hearing um, footsteps, the rustling of the leaves um, um, and everything. And I went and looked, and I couldn't see nobody. I couldn't see anything had moved. And I went back to work, and then I heard it again getting closer to me and, and everything. And then I started smelling pipe smoke, and... I thought, is that Ben Weathers? He has come up to sneak up on me and scare me and everything. But I never could see anybody or hear anybody else, you know. And I went back to working. But the paint, the smell of the pipe smoke just kept getting stronger and stronger to where it was like almost filling the cabin to where, I, you know, I couldn't hardly breathe. I have asthma. And I thought, good grief, this is crazy. But um, so whenever I was coming back down the rock steps um i've always been really careful about walking because of you know they the rocks are a little unsteady but the limestone too they're slippery <laughs> right and something clearly tripped me because i had a solid foot and everything and something tripped me and i ended up with my uh, paint water just all over me i was a mess but <laughs> the next day i went over to see joyce anderson she's the seventh generation back and um i was telling her about my experience and she said judy she says that was probably my grandfather Merritt. She says he really loved the pipe smoke and everything and was quite a smoker and everything. And she says, and I've had feelings that he's been there whenever I've been over there. So she says, I really feel like you got visited by my grandpa Merritt. So, um, and I feel like that too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, are there any other um, paranormal experiences you've had here at all, or, or um, have you ever heard of anybody else having any? Yeah, I mean, I've had some, but nothing I want to talk right. about, but yeah. um, I did have a, a Civil War group that used to camp here, and they still do camp from time to time, but they always camped in the corner over by where the Delaware um, burial mound is, and um, he said, you know, he just had to quit camping there because the Native Americans kept him up all night, all night long. <laughs> So now he camps in the other corner and everything. So he says he has a better, a more peaceful sleep when he camps in the other corner. Right. So, um, but yeah, uh, stuff like that from time to time you do hear. <laughs> mm -hmm. So tell, tell us uh, people where they can find uh, more about Beck's Mill if they want to want to look into it. Yeah, it is. Um, you can see us on our website at www.friendsofbecksmill.org. Um, or we, you can see us on Facebook too. We actually have a Facebook page now. So, excellent, excellent. Well, thank you very much, Judy. We we really appreciate it. And uh, I don't know, maybe maybe one of these days we can uh, we can come out here at midnight and run a still and see if we can't conjure up some spirits. Absolutely, <laughs> I'd love that. Yep. You want to get Kim's story about the Native American? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got we we actually have a uh, a story. This is what what we get for not pressing record the first time. What I get for not pressing, I start forgetting what all we talked about, but. Kim and I actually have an experience related to Beck's Mill, and, and she tells it really well, so I'm going to let her step in. And... So it would have been like the end of 2014 going into 2015. They used to have out here at the old fire department um, at the top of the hill, 
a thing they called uh, Bex Mill Music, and they'd have a bunch of guys come out and play and whatnot. Well, this particular evening, it was a very stormy evening. Like, we had tornado warnings and everything else, lightning, and the atmosphere was just absolutely, completely charged with electricity. Well, we went to leave to head home, and as we're driving down the bottoms, um, over by where Judy told us that they, they what the governor's mansion was, yeah. um, there it's a flat area with pasture land down by Mill Creek, and Blue River, Blue River excuse me, Blue River, and we were um, driving down through there, and very clearly. A transparent but very solid, if that's a way to describe it, it um, Native American gentleman was dancing with the thunderstorm. And um, it really kind of took me aback and I grabbed him and I knew I wasn't, it wasn't the pregnancy hormones because he saw it too. <laughs> but, <laughs> They're rubbing off on me too. Yeah, right. Osmosis. But yeah, I, I definitely saw it and I remember it very vividly. Uh, right. It was definitely a, a thing that was there that did happen. Yep. So... But again, this whole area is kind of charged with all that stuff, and that's why the Native Americans would have seen it as sacred. And the same reason I think the Becks saw it as something special, and that all the volunteers here see it as something special, because there's there's more to it than it just being a historical site. The, the whole site is kind of charged with a little bit of energy uh, naturally and in and of itself. So, all right, guys. Well, thank you very much, Judy. Thank you. Yeah, have a good one. Thank you.